Hi, everyone, and welcome to the MLOps podcast. I am Dean, your host. And today I have with me another person with a great name. Uh, this is Dean Langsam. He is hey. also a data scientist at Sentinel One, where he works on machine learning applications for cybersecurity. Before that, he worked as a data scientist at Bluevine. He is the creator of an open source project called Dove Panda, which is an overlay for pandas uh, that automatically gives you hints and tips on how to properly use it. He holds a master's uh, degree in industrial engineering from Tel Aviv University, where he conducted research uh, using data science to explore vaccination patterns for whooping cough. And he is also a prolific public speaker and internet celebrity around data science, machine learning, and technology, one of the organizers of Pi Data Israel. Now, a little known fact is that uh, Dean here is one of the reasons this podcast uh, exists. So we, he, he basically pushed us at a very early stage uh, to, to do something like this. Um, and so I guess we, we, we get him to thank for, for having him on. Um, and one of the things that he philosophically pushes for is that podcasts should be uh, casual conversations and not 60-minute interviews. So we'll try to make this as uh, informal as possible. Uh, be prepared. And uh, yeah, Dean, say hi. And I don't know if you want to add anything to the introduction. Yeah, with this kind of introduction, I should come here like every week. Uh, so thanks for all the kind words. Uh, I do work in Sentinel One. Uh, Dove Panda is a package that I really like. I should maintain it better. Currently, it only supports older versions of Pandas. Uh, I hope to get the time to work on that. Uh, and about Pi Data, uh, we're closing the CFP uh, next week. I'm not sure if this is coming out by then. Uh, but also we are looking for sponsors. The event itself is on December, so you have the time. Uh, but I welcome everybody to check our website, PyData Tel Aviv. Uh, first time it's happening as a, an individual event, not combined with PyCon IL. Uh, it's going to be great, I believe. I believe it as well. Um, I guess uh, for the um, announcement part, this is relevant also for non-Israeli speakers, right? Like this is if, if people are living abroad and want a, an excuse to visit Israel, they should also submit. Yeah, we're, we're, we don't provide travel, but uh, if you get in, uh, we'll be happy to have you at the conference. Uh, talks are in could be made into English. Actually, we encourage the talks to be in English, although we have some Hebrew track if you're also a bit shy and you do live in Israel. So you're covering all your your bases. So I guess yeah. starting from a, from a question so that we can get into it. But you, one of the things that I like about uh, uh, about speaking with you is that you sort of have this really varied experience when it comes to machine learning. Um, you, you also sort of are uh, uh, a polymath. I, I don't know if that would be the right word to, to use here, but you know a lot of things about a lot of things. Um, so from all of the fields of machine learning that you've had the opportunity to uh, work on or experiment with, which one is the best and why? That's a, that's a tough one. Uh, what, what the, the question is, how do you define the uh, one field of machine learning? Like as we, we've seen... In the past few years, like everything is everything, or as a movie I've just seen, everything everywhere all at once. 
Um, and even specifically now, you know, like you could have said, I don't know, two months ago, you could have said we have uh, tabular data, we have transformers, like we have uh, CNNs for images, and then we have uh, I know LSTMs for uh, for language, uh, and then we got transformers for language, then we got transformers for this, transformers for that, and so now everything is everything all at once. Uh, so I'm not sure how do you, would you define the field of machine learning um, specifically, and uh, w when we talked about it like a few minutes ago, unrecorded. Um, <laughs> the question, if the question was, was your what is what is your best problem in machine learning, I've written myself a note, and that would be Titanic, like the first Titanic uh, question, uh, intro in Kaggle. Because I think most problems, like we do like to talk on podcasts about like the cutting edge technology of images with text, DALI 2, GPT-3, and all, everything like that. But most people, most data scientists, even not the upcoming ones, even senior data scientists are doing the, the uh, problems like Titanic, like give me a real world problem uh, that I could actually get into real business values. And um, pe people are sometimes shy about having like, they're, they're thinking, well, I'm not, I could, I could never be as good as this person because this person is done, I don't know, he created GPT-3. Uh, but most machine learning problems are taking an old uh, business use case and just doing like simple machine learning that you can do after like two university courses, apply XGBoost, apply some decision tree. There are many, business use cases this could be solved by that and actually get value into the hands of not machine learning people like actual people to actually use in production or in business decisions and um, every time that I get excited about like a new thing in deep learning but then I go home and I just do like this some problem that could actually I know increase some revenues to something like actually uh, my wife's work well, works at like a convenience store uh, and once told her like maybe get me all the data of all our like the regular customers um, and let's try to do like the the most common basic uh, recommendation system uh, I actually never got to do so but like I'm, I get excited by that as much as I get excited by, by seeing like some talk about like a new innovation about something in Transformers. Um, the best way to dodge that very hard uh, question that I threw at you. <laughs> so, so good job. I think that, that you make a, a good point that um, it's not, it's not completely overlooked, but it's definitely not getting the amount of uh, spotlight hours it should be, which is uh, the whole point of, you know, this podcast is called the MLOps podcast. And the the tag name is sort of a discussion with industry experts about getting models into production. But the whole point of getting models into production is to provide value in, in real world use cases. And uh, more often than not, the simple solution is better than the complicated one because it gives you more time to iterate uh, shorter time to value, shorter time to market. So it's also a competitive advantage if this is sort of a competition. Um, and 
And yeah, there are a lot of good memes and a lot of uh, uh, influencers uh, made, made their name by joking about XGBoost being the best model of them all up to date, um, up till today. So I, I think there is definitely a lot, of, a lot of truth to that. And it also relates to the whole point of, you know, um, the first part of every machine learning project being understanding the problem, the data domain, the business domain, like what the hell are you trying to do here? And then the solution is, is should be an afterthought. Um, and like many other fields, uh, again, we, I had a, a similar discussion earlier today, but like many other fields, if you start from a solution and then look for a problem, you're headed for a world of pain. So you should try to avoid that if you can. Yeah, I remember uh, six years ago, I believe it was my, maybe not my first, but one of the first interviews that I had for like getting a real job. And the interviewer said like the first rule of machine learning is trying not to do it. And uh, of course, th th this was maybe extreme, but uh, although it's true if you can not to, but sometimes there are solutions that you can do with like XGBoost, like, I don't know, 50 trees that run in 10 minutes instead of building like extreme architectures that are very cool technologically, but would sometimes take the, the time to market will be months more. Yeah, I, I think that the, uh, like this kind of connects also to how we try to like advocate when we speak to customers or to potential customers or to people that are not even customers or prospects or whatever, but just are like getting started. The first step is try to build a pipeline that gets you to production with the stupidest model you can. Like if it's an if else and always and, and the, the model just always uh, chooses dog and you get that to production, that would be, but you do it obviously uh, at, a, at a fraction of the time, that would be better than taking 10 times as much and then deploying a neural network because you might realize that either it's not valuable to anyone and you shouldn't deploy it to production or you deploy it to production. I mean, the if else and always choose a dog maybe is a bad example, but if you have some, as you say, like very simple classifier um, uh, that, that uses some uh, classical model, runs much faster, needs no special hardware, et cetera, et cetera, you realize that the baseline is better than the minimum you need. And so improving on that with a more sophisticated model that will take you 10 times as much is just not worth it from a business perspective. And that's, that's hard to hear, I think, as, as an engineer. Like I feel like my, so now I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a founder, I'm a CEO. I, I'm not supposed to write code, but sometimes I kind of feel like I'm losing my mind. So in the weekend, I do write some code. And that's usually on something that I find is cool and it might be useful. It might be useful in sort of a edge case or something like that. Um, and, and I think that that's okay. Like you should make time to, to do these things, but most of my time is spent on what I think would bring the most value to the business. And so I think it's like the Google 20% time, only 20% is a lot of time to do, to spend on something that's completely useless. Maybe, maybe, um, Maybe 20% is sort of your free time if you do that, or I don't know, whatever, 10 or 15% of your work time on something like that. But most of it should be real business value. Yep. So um, another, another topic that you know a lot more about than, than I do is, um, is like ML in, in cybersecurity. So 
uh, I think when we got started, uh, the mental model of machine learning I had was either you take a table and you do linear regression or something like that, or you do some neural network for uh, uh, computer vision or NLP or sort of some cool task that you have unstructured data for. And like, it's hard for a human to explain why something is something, why a picture is a dog or a cat or something like that. Um, and so you train a model to do that. Um, but I had no idea how it was used in fields like cybersecurity. So maybe other people listening to this podcast don't know. And so what does, what does ML in cybersecurity look like? Um, yeah. Yes. So as you know, uh, the, the word ML uh, is an umbrella of like a lot of different terms. And similarly, also the word cybersecurity <laughs> uh, contains so much within it. Uh, so I specifically work in Sentinel-1. We do, we started as endpoint security and now we do some cloud security and many other stuff. But then again, um, there are many different companies, specifically even in Israel, uh, that do like, I know, protecting many other things. And I know maybe something about like ML in endpoint security. And by endpoint security is basically what we used to call antivirus 10 years ago. Um, <clears throat> and and uh, up until like 10 years ago, maybe 15, I'm not sure about the history there, uh, but basically antivirus was like, give me, there, there, there was like a huge hash map of files. Then you can, you can, you get a new file, you can create the, uh, the hash for it, like uh, MD5 and stuff or stuff like that, the, the SHA-256. And then you get like, I don't know, a string of letters. You could check that against a huge hash table. I'm not trying to diss on any cybersecurity people. Um, maybe I'm not like the most accurate, but that was basically uh, what and like antivirus software did. Uh, and Hashing then, functions made the world. Yeah. Yeah, basically that. And again, it worked. And uh, as we said previously, if it worked, then it was awesome for that time. Yeah. Uh, but then things became more complex. Like if you change even like one bit inside some executable, then it's like a, a, a whole different uh, hash, right? Mm -hmm. But if you yeah. check it with some more basic stuff, like with, without even ML or something, but if you, you could do, you can create checks that would find out those are like the same files. Uh, so yeah. it's easy when you change one byte, but what if you change 10 of those or, or 100,000 bytes? And what if you reverse the orders and stuff like that? And uh, those are also not the things that I'm very uh, knowledgeable in because that's like the deep cyber stuff. Uh, but basically what, what we can do now is trying to extract um, information about a file. Um, mm -hmm. Like we can say how many um, parts are in it, how many readable parts, how many uh, writable parts. I'm not very accurate with the term parts. I forgot the term, like the, the executable binary terms. But basically you can create many different, like how many, how much, when was it signed? What what thing compiled it? Um, stuff like that. I'm trying not to be too specific. There's a thing a thing called Yara rules, which are like compiled rules that you can run on a binary, and it basically it said 
if the Yara rule matches something like, and I'm again, not very accurate here, but imagine regex, you can run regex on a string, so you can run a Yara rule on a binary. Um, that's conceptually So this is like a rule-based system to understand what a certain file is. It's something like it. Uh, okay. And again, like my, my, my friends, uh, the cybersecurity people would kill me for uh, dis describing it like that. But that is how I understand it as like a machine learning person, because that, that is something that I can run a thousand of those and that then get like a binary vector, right? Mm -hmm. Once you okay. get those, uh, you have a lot of features, then you can do machine learning. Uh, and then you can play, try and play with it with deep learning or XGBoost or whatever you want to play it with. Uh, mm -hmm. So that's one aspect of like uh, the the endpoint security stuff. That's called static detection. That's basically what replaces the old antivirus. And then what we what we have in Sentinel One, and this is where other companies are also going for. Like this is the modern cybersecurity. You can check a file like once something started to run. Um, like maybe the file looks fine and maybe like, uh, it, it, it seems benign and it can do like 99% of the time it, it is benign, but then mm -hmm. once every, once in a while it does something malicious, uh, when it's actually running and that's mm -hmm. what sending one started with, like, that's the, what made the company what it is. And that's trying to find out, uh, things that are happening in real time on the computer. Um, we have, mm -hmm. we try to call it AI, but like we have the joke that AI is just fancy if statements. And yes. um, most of the like engine is basically that, but it, there are like very fancy if statements, like the, the smartest people I know work on them. Um, mm -hmm. And I, 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 I'm glad that I can call it AI, even though it's not like machine learning. Um, yeah. But on top of that, you can apply some machine learning, and we have some uh, new cool stuff that I'm, I specifically don't work on, not work on them. But we have some cool stuff to try to see actually the the dynamic stuff and try to do some machine learning on it, um, and they work pretty good. And also, uh, like the the first thing you want to say, okay, if it runs all the time, then it's run it's running live, then. Uh, Let's do some deep learning that understands and can predict in real time, like LSTMs and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, and then actually, also in most <laughs> most of the cases, you 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 again understand that if you do uh, some basic Jeez. models, they they will give you like awesome results. And so we always come back to like XGBoost wins. Most just times. use X. So the, the takeaway from this episode is just use XGBoost, and only when it fails, then you uh, you you graduate to the other stuff. Um, apropos you know, like, apropos the rules of Fight Club, yeah. <laughs> you can find failure modes in which a neural network will have to work, but I think that like uh, first rule of machine learning is you try to use XGBoost. The second rule is you try to use XGBoost. Um, and and afterwards, maybe you try some other stuff. But yeah, yeah, I think uh, we're trying to enforce deep learning this day these days on like everything. Yeah, and um, maybe it's not always the best case. And I think like 
if if your first go to is not deep learning, like your first go go to would be deep learning if you wanna distinguish something within an image or trying to do something on a like human language. That mm -hmm. that the first go to will be deep learning. But then if you have some specific business problem, I think ninety nine percent, and maybe I'm over exa uh, like exaggerating, but like ninety nine percent of problems don't do deep learning. Probably it will be okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I I think we spent a bunch of time trying to think about why that is the case. I think there is some appeal, uh, like the deep learning is more magical or seems more magical than other learning methods. So it's sort of like you throw it at a problem and you don't know what you're gonna get. It might be amazing and you you wouldn't be able to expect it, right? And um, classical machine learning models are seem more deterministic. I don't know if, I mean, I, I think it's also objectively true, right? It's very, it's, it's uh, in all of the cases where it's basically like matrix uh, multiplication with no nonlinear, nonlinearities, um, it's sort of more predictable. So less, less sexy, less of a reason to, to use it. Um, but yeah, I don't know. We'll, we'll see what happens as, as you said in the beginning. And now we throw transformers at everything. So maybe, maybe transformers totally replace uh, a deep learning as, as the concept. And you're like, oh, well, I want to use a transformer for some random data type. Yeah, although I think uh, when, uh, when I'm speaking to people not from the field about like uh, deep learning or machine learning, I always try to, and again, you can find counter examples to the, to the next thing I'm going to say, but basically, uh, deep learning is very good at like actually being human, uh, and that that includes the positives and the negatives, right? So we're mm -hmm. trained deep learning today to dif to actually distinguish between cats, dogs, boats, and like everything. But then yeah. you wanted to explain how, like how did you find that? It doesn't know. But then yeah. also a human doesn't know, right? If I ask you how do you know this is a dog and this is cat, you would just say, I know, I've seen enough cats in my time, right? Yeah. Um, so deep learning is very good at being human, again, also in language, right? Well, how do you know that this word come after that one? So if you're not from the field of researching specifically that, you don't know, you just do it. But then yeah. we, when we go back to business problems and you're trying to predict sales for the next quarter, uh, that is something people are not very good at. And uh, yeah. so deep learning is also, I wouldn't say not very good at it because I've seen some examples that prove otherwise, but like it's not the first go-to uh, use case to use deep learning in something that's like predicting the future and not um, trying to be human, like mimicking human behavior. Yeah, I, I would probably bet that also for those cases, the state-of-the-art results don't come from deep learning. I might be wrong, but... Uh, admittedly, that is not that is not uh, my my uh, specialization either. I, I think that it's um, I, I think it's interesting that the uh, sort of the the way you described it is the same way I think about like language for native speakers versus non-native speakers. So if you learn English uh, in school in a non-English speaking country, they teach you a lot of rules for how you're supposed to say certain uh, uh, sentences and words and things like that. 
Um, but so personally, I lived in, in the United States. And so when I got back to Israel and I had to sort of join class and learn there, but I was already speaking English as a native speaker, I didn't understand the rules. They were actually confusing to me. I, you just look at a sentence and you know if it's right or wrong. You, you can't explain that it's yeah. like past progressive or something like that. I still don't understand those those things. So so I, I, I think maybe it, it, like we think about uh, deep learning as, as superhuman and maybe in a certain sense it is, but it's sort of more like an amplified human abilities, whereas what non-deep learning methods do can actually be non-human uh as you say so that's that's an interesting an interesting way to look at it yeah i i hope i'm not like pissing everybody anybody off because that's uh maybe like i'm not sure everybody would agree with that uh well if we don't say if we don't say controversial things it's going to be much less interesting so it's all good yeah also, also it sounded like i think in the past two 20 minutes that i'm like dissing deep learning uh, so first of all, I'm a bit biased. I'm not doing actually like real machine learning, deep learning in production uh, and stuff like that. I'm not like the things, the things I, I love about this field is not like, I'm not a researcher and I wouldn't go into like a research uh, company that tries to find like the next big, re next big architecture, the next big loss function or like optimizer. That is not what I do. Um, so, but I do love like deploying deep learning, uh, yeah. but I'm also like, because I'm not going to do this for like the first thing that I'm actually trying, uh, I have a lot of criticism against it. But when I think about it, maybe like my friends that do deep learning all the day are probably even bigger criticizers of the field. So maybe I'm not that bad. You're, you're not in the glass house, so you can throw rocks as much as you want. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but that's actually like uh, one other thing that uh, I don't think we've spoken about ever in, in person that I'm actually genuinely curious about is like um, relating to sort of your experience with a bunch of different types of machine learning and research and, and things like that. Like, how, how did you decide to go into a career um, uh, in, in like, or maybe not a career because you've done other things as well, but like what led you to choose like, okay, I'm going to work on machine learning for cybersecurity. Uh, it's funny answer. Just like I got in, I was looking for my next job in data science. I wasn't mm -hmm. looking for the domain. Uh, I talked with my friends, like now I call them friends back then they were like interviewers. Uh, I just talked with Sentinel One. I talked with uh, a like company that does vision for 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 commerce. Uh, mm -hmm. I've talked with uh, something that's like fraud detection, and I just like Sentinel One the best, and uh, that's how I got into cybersecurity. I'm not a cybersecurity person, not trying to be one. Although again, some of the some are smartest people I know uh, are coming from cybersecurity, um, so. Uh, but again, I didn't look for this specifically. I'm not sure if that's what I'm going to do in the future. Uh, so what, what led your, what led your decision? Do you mean like the people or, or something else? Yeah. The, the regular way you would choose a job. Uh, like I, I thought this was the most promising, 
uh, company combining all aspects that like everybody would look for in a job. Uh, the trade-off between like what I like about the people, the, the product, the company, uh, the compensation, you know, uh, all, all sorts of those decisions, basically. You also made a good uh, pr prediction about the future with uh, the, the sort of the IPO since you joined, right? We can, we can talk about it now, right? Uh, yeah, so. I, I've joined in a good time, yeah. That's uh, timing is uh, timing is everything. Yeah. Uh, so going back to the early days, what was the first model you deployed to production, and how was the experience? Yeah, so I'm I'm not the person with like the most straight up answers as you've uh, understood by now, uh, and that again depends how would you define deploy to production. My first. Uh, model that actually got into like the product. I'm not sure what you mm -hmm. would call it getting into production. By that I mean like I think it was 2016, uh, which seems like not that long ago when I think about meeting my wife. But then it's like ancient history when I think about the field. Uh, and our basic way to deploy into production. I've worked in a company that's uh, a search engine and a recommendation engine. Um, they try to do end-to-end -end with uh, the customers to try to bring them the best social influencers. Um, mm -hmm. And we try to have something like a Google for specific search uh, like influencers, which is something Google doesn't do until today. There are very specific fields for like people's hobbies. Like I know, yeah. um, like we've, we've seen some very weird stuff. I can't remember by now, but I know like, fishing but a specific type of fishing and then you see a guy that's like has like 10,000 followers which sounds like nothing but it's like it's 90% of all the people in the world that actually are enjoying that Do specific that. type of fishing uh, so that's yeah. what we try to find and then the way we deployed into production is that we got the model uh, working on all of our uh, data and then we uh, created a huge text file, which we then uh, exported into Elastic. And Elastic did the magic of like combining it and doing the uh, searching with like cosine similarity and stuff. So in mm. today's standards, I'm not sure you would even call it like deploying to production, right? We created one file and then we told the uh, Elastic work on that. Um, but that would probably something you would call like the first. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that counts. The way the way I define production today is like, if you have a model that actually makes an impact on real people or a real business, and you're not just using it as like a show and tell, POC, stuff like that, then I would consider it production. And as you sort of alluded to, there, there are many ways you can deploy to production. Um, I have a talk coming up uh, about what production even means. Uh, in which I try to stay with a stricter and arguably more modern version of like wrapping a model and creating sort of an API that is accessible to either users directly or a product that calls that API to provide uh, inference. But I think that what you're describing, again, like I, th I think that this is sort of a, a, a thread connecting many of the things that we have discussed so far is a simpler way to do it. Like you could do real-time inference and come back with, it's sort of the best result or something like that, but but there are more specialized tools to do search. And so 
just uh, sort of uh, uh, filling up that that database with the correct information is something you can do much more easily, still bring a lot of value without getting into over-engineered uh, uh, solutions. So, so definitely, I would definitely count that as as production. Um, <laughs> do do you feel that there were um, let's say significant changes uh, since then? Like, if if you were to go back to that same task today, would you do it fundamentally differently, or would it be more or less the same? Um, maybe like. This is actually one of the specific cases that deep learning will come ha in handy because we've done a lot of language processing. Um, but and but also I'm not sure if there aren't like because because we, we've taken we, we we deployed Spark like zero point something today they have like I haven't worked with Spark for like three years but it's it's in like three point something or four point something. Uh, and then we try to take the MLlib inside Spark and do some um, language algorithms, like the, the older generation of language algorithms. And I'm pretty sure that if I would try to solve this today, I could solve it in like the basic problem would be solved in like two weeks because there's probably some pip install something, give me the text and it works. It works pretty good. Like, of course, like there is a lot of features that the data science team could still create within those limits. But the basic search and uh, recommend, um, I believe like if you take some uh, package that sits on top of PyTorch and then maybe load some weights from the internet um, and just fine tune, there's probably some something that solves this with like a month of work, maybe not two weeks. He just gave me an idea, which is interesting. Like if obviously if you look at uh, state of the art solutions today, you're biasing yourself because Google has infinite resources basically to throw at any problem they want to solve. So like um, beating search at Google today is really hard. Still people, uh, uh, famously, uh, Richard uh, so Soker, I, I hope I'm saying his name right. And if not, I hope it doesn't prevent him from being a guest on this podcast someday. But uh, uh, he is working on a sort of competitor to, to, to search uh, on Google. But it would be interesting to see if like a single person could basically use a Wayback Machine to, to access the, I mean, I, I don't think it works that way, but like basically beat the original Google search uh, a product with modern technology on their own, um, and I, I would it would probably be possible. Like, like I, it seems reasonable to me that that would be the case. So um, yeah. <laughs> no, but the thing is, uh, like, there's there's still a lot of place for like creating search engines. Just not like don't try to compete with Google's. Don't search for like the entire internet, right? But Google yeah. is not the best at this specific kind of problem. Give me that guy from Kentucky that likes to fish in this lake, and he's like the most famous person you know in his county. I don't know. I'm maybe I'm probably inventing that person. Or we found out like there's a huge community of um, Russian women breastfeeding. They have like very huge celebrities talking about breastfeeding uh 
So, you know, I'm not sure if I'm going into Google and trying to find like Russian breastfeeding. Uh, yeah. Uh, first of all, I'm not sure it's even like considered safe search yeah. uh, in Google's terms. But it's a very legit community. Like, not, not there's not anything like not safe in it. It's, it's yeah. Um, and you can find so many examples. Even if you go to like things like basketball, Google would give you like a first page result full of the LeBron Jameses. Yeah. But if I want to advertise some shoes, maybe I could give like the best high schooler in every. Uh, best like basketball player in the best high school in every county and you have like a few hundred counties you give each one of those kids like only the shoes no not even like like even money just give them the shoes and they will give you almost free publicity that would cost a lot less than uh, lebron james and maybe give you bigger impact and i'm not sure google can do this they probably could do it if they wanted to kick you down uh but they don't do it and, they have uh, better things to do with their time. Yeah. Yeah. So for so I, I believe there are many such use cases in the world for people to build search and recommendation engines. Yeah, I, I think that there is this uh, saying in in entrepreneurship that um, if it's if it's uh, uh, sort of a a problem that is obvious and affects a ton of people, then Google will do it. Um, if it's obvious and it doesn't affect a lot of people, then, then that's a great, that's a great startup idea because the chances of Google doing it are small. You could actually own that market and then expand to similar markets. And then that's a good way to take over the world. And then if it's non-obvious and affects a lot of people, then that's probably for like really innovative moonshot companies. So maybe you're Elon Musk and you can go after SpaceX, but most people wouldn't be able to do that. And then non-obvious and small, that just means you're in for a world of pain. But it still could be a good idea if you're like a specialist um, and, and the small amount of people can pay a lot of money. So, yeah. Um, so, yeah. So if you have an idea that it affects a ton of people, uh, then it's probably something that um, more resource uh, in, intense organizations can take more easily than you can. Um, Where but- do you think you have started? I think that the, I think machine learning, uh, definitely when we started, but still to this day, um, is not a huge group of people. If you compare it, like one of the things that that uh, you know we kept getting asked was what's the ratio between data scientists and developers, right? Because developers today, it's very clear to everyone that's a huge market. Um, machine learning engineers, like the growth is staggering, right? Like it's growing very fast, but like much faster than growth in developers over the same years, if you sort of count the, you know, start date of, of, of everything. But obviously software development has paved the way in, in many ways for, for machine learning. We're, we're standing on the shoulders of giants. Um, but but, but, it, but so, so growth is, is, very, is very high the absolute numbers are still not comparable to software development. And so I think that we're still in the range where if you're targeting developers in general, right, going specifically after machine learning uh, practitioners and like, you know, neglecting everyone else is not going to be worth your time and effort. Like you might do it on the way, right? But not not as like the, the flagship thing. Um, and so I still think, I mean, I'm, I'm obviously biased, but I still think it's a, it's a, there's a lot of potential for building 
really large companies. And arguably, like now we're speaking in the future, right? Because when we make we made this decision originally was almost well now three years ago, I guess, or three or two and a half years. Um, there there was basically nothing. Like the largest the largest companies maybe had a market cap of like whatever. Um, 50 to 100 million, if I don't count, you know, Databricks, which is like a data company, right? And, and things like that. So things were much, much earlier in, in, in sort of in the life cycle, and it made even more sense. And now it's in a sense proven itself because we do have Databricks has grown ridiculously, Snowflake as well. They're not machine learning companies. They're still data companies, I think, first and foremost, but, but they have very strong uh, machine learning offerings. And, and they're huge. So I think that that's sort of a case in point for for startups can can uh, survive in, in those climates. Um, but yeah, we'll, but we'll see. We'll see. The future is uh, is, is still in the future. Um, one, one other thing that um, I thought might be interesting for people to hear that I think is unique about you is is sort of your social media presence. Um, and I, you're, you're, I know you, you're a very humble guy, I think in general, but, um, but you're very active on social media in many different capacities, both, I think in, in sort of a humoristic or, or light, uh, um, light ways, but also, and, you know, saying your, your, uh, thoughts and participating in organizing, uh, events and things like that. Um, what drew you towards sort of uh, the public outward facing side of things um, and, and how has it affected your life, your career? Uh, were you always like this? <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm not sure I can answer that um, like with sound logic. I think that's just like my hobby. I enjoy that. Uh, I remember uh, an old CDO of mine in like a previous company. He asked me, "How would you? How do you find the time to to be an influencer?" And and I, I I told him like, I don't watch soccer on TV, soccer being like the most popular in Israel, but you can change it. Like I'm not watching sports. Mm-hmm. Uh, doing social networks is just like my hobby. It always sounds weird when someone tells you Facebook is my hobby, because Facebook sounds like a just passing the time thing. But Facebook is my hobby. I have pages. Um, I uh, I have many followers on my private account. Uh, I talk about things I enjoy, which is mostly humor. But then sometimes I talk about like science or the things we do. And the best kinds of posts are one, the ones that I combine the two. Uh, yeah. Always thinking like, this is not going to work because how many people are going to understand this specific word game combined with this specific field in machine learning combined with this specific feeling you get when something happens in the office. But then again, but then those posts get hundreds of likes. So I'm not sure how this works. I found out that I, I have no way to predict if something's going to work. I have some, I have things that I think are like, very bad but i need to get them out there and they, then they mm-hmm. get hundreds of posts and then i have posts that i have that i think are like genius and they have like three likes so i'm not sure i can predict that uh but basically it's my hobby it's just like what i do i'm i'm probably a very uh public person although there is today the uh introvert introvert extrovert thing that is very popular yeah. and and i feel very comfortable uh in that uh category like i wouldn't approach someone 
uh, in a conference, uh, if I'm alone, I wouldn't approach anybody at first. But then if mm -hmm. you just put me in the table with five people, tell me, you guys are the group, you have to talk, then then I would shine, like, like people get to know me. So that's basically uh, me in real life. And then it manifests to social me uh, media presence and everything like that. Um, I knew I wanted to give a talk even when I was a junior and had nothing to talk about. I knew that I wanted to be like that person on stage that could be affected maybe by some teachers I had in the past. Uh, I told myself I want to be that kind of person like this teacher was to me. Um, mm -hmm. And giving talks is not like being a teacher, but it's the thing that most resembles that. Um, yeah, and and then moving into like organizing conferences and hackathons, it's I think it's part of that. It's part of the framework of like being, on one hand, social and uh, like public, and then on the other hand, doing something that's actually affecting people's advancements. Um, that's the first yeah. time I had to actually speak it into words. Thanks. So thank you for that. Thanks. I think I've learned something. <laughs> <laughs> happy to ask uh, happy to ask all the right questions um i i really re relate to that i think that there's um especially with now with what you said like the distinction between introverts and extroverts i uh i saw a video about it uh today during lunch um i i think that it's right to a certain extent and I have always felt more on the extroverted side. And so that's why I enjoy speaking with people, speaking to people um, and and sort of, uh, you know, formulating things in an outward facing way. Um, there is a lot of discussion about whether or not you should do that, even if it's not in your nature, uh, which I think is very, which is, is sort of an interesting discussion to have, especially in the context of like career building. Like, do you think that, even if it doesn't come naturally to people, they should sort of uh, quote unquote, get out of their shell and, and still post stuff, still talk at conferences, do things like that. I'm, I'm actually contemplating that questions uh, this, la this last few days or weeks because I'm always encouraging people to give talks. And there, most people like 90% would say, I have nothing to talk about because people are very shy. Many people yeah. in our fields have like, um, imposter syndrome yes uh, and they would say i have nothing to talk about and i'm trying to say it i tell them something that uh jeremy howard once said in fast ai uh course he said something along the lines of like you're not giving the talks to like the person you want to be in 10 years you're giving to uh, the talk uh to the person you've been six months ago right so yeah. you think it's nothing but it's not after you do something for six months and you're a junior, it's probably not very complex scientifically. But if you, mm -hmm. you're probably the only person in the world that got your specific kinds of problems. And if you're doing something like, I don't know, how I did this kind of thing in pandas, and it's like the bread and butter of like every data scientist. So the junior would say, like the junior person would say, why can I give pandas talks to these kinds of people who are probably a lot more versed in pandas uh, and I say you could because they haven't faced the specific problem you've faced in the last six months and probably there are more people who 
still haven't had those six months in the audience than the people who did. So in any yeah. case, it's good for you. But on the uh, other I hand, would, I, yeah. I'm not I'm not sure you could enforce that. Like if it doesn't come natural for someone to go to a meetup and just like strike up a conversation with someone, mm -hmm. uh, I'm I'm not sure. Like there's there's this approach that says, but you still should. And then people feel bad because come they're like going into the meetup saying I'm going to speak to people, but then they think, oh, I'm this junior. Why would I approach something with this, this and that? Uh, they're not sure about like how nice are people in the community, and they think like I've seen some communities, and I think like data science community is like the nicest people I've seen in many communities. Um, yeah. But that's besides the point. So. So they come to the meetup and say, I should talk to people, but then they talk to no one. But so the only thing you have, you've achieved that now they feel bad. And if you tell something yeah. like, you're good, just go to this meetup and everything's enjoy fine. Yourself. If you don't talk to anyone, yeah. that's also fine. Just enjoy the talks, enjoy the pizza uh, yes. and just enjoy yourself. And once that person enjoys themselves, they will see that like someone would go to talk to them. Because it happens, the someone you sit uh, next to, a conversation that we started like, where is this? I, I don't like the mushroom pizza. Where is the always one? And then you start like talking about something, and then ten, ten minutes later, it just happens to be about data science. So it just happens. So I'm not into like like I'm not encouraging people to enforce themselves. I'm just trying to um, motivate them to say like, it's fine. You will be fine. Um, that's my approach. And then. Coming from a person like I, six years later, I think I can call myself senior, and uh, I know I only I only lost my uh, imposter syndrome like I don't know after four or five years, so that would be uh, fairly new. But as someone who already who finally doesn't have that, and someone who's a senior, I'm trying to be approachable, like even not mm -hmm. when I'm speaking, not not in the part where I'm like, okay, I finished my talk, ask me questions, even later. And there's a run rule that I think I've heard on a podcast about Python called Python Bytes. Um, and they said something like, when you're in a circle, like three, four people speaking, like mm -hmm. leave a space, let another person join. Because it's always the hardest joining in some conversation. But yes. if people are talking in a conference hall, they're not talking about something private about like, I don't know, their the their kids develop developmental problems. You shouldn't join those kind of info. But they're not talking about that. They're probably talking about something in data science or something about the pizza or something something about the hotels. Just join; yeah. they'll be happy to. And I'm yeah. trying to be the one who's like um, showing uh, in in zero words how I'm approachable and just like come speak with me. And we'll find a way. And that's also like I'm also in that, right? Because I could sometimes be that person alone. And even if I don't have the imposter syndrome anymore, if I'm like I'm I'm the most senior person in the room, uh, I'm not having a, the easiest time just approaching people I don't know. Uh, it's yeah. easier when you see like three people talking, and they have a, a, a little bit of space. Yeah, I agree. I, I think um, I haven't fact checked this. So and I like to be data driven. So I apologize in advance, in advance <laughs> if this is a if this is a lie. But I think that I, I saw a statistic today that the best predictor 
of, of creating uh, relationships is physical proximity. So if you just go to places where there are other people enough times, you're very likely to end up making connections that you didn't have before. So that relates to your first point about like just going to meetups um, and, and doing it more than like, like a one-off thing. Like even if you went one time and you spoke to no one, go again, and you'll probably start speaking to people by the third or fourth time uh, that yep. you do it. Um, for, for us, like this was a very important part uh, starting the, the startup. Like we felt really out of the network. We didn't know too many people in the startup world and the machine learning world. Like we had a few friends uh, and that was it. And so one of the uh, best decisions, and I'll give some uh, uh, kudos to, to Google here, is we signed up for the Google Campus for Startups which was basically like a coffee place that Google runs and lets you come to work out of. And you, there are no prerequisites. Like you don't need to raise money. I think the prerequisites at the time, I don't know if it changed then, was like you need to have a technological startup you're working on and it needs to be more than like, bro, I have an idea. Like you, you have to actually be working on something. And then you're surrounded by other people that are in the same stage as you are. Like they have a tech idea and they're working on it actually. So that formed a ton of connections that some of them are like still very strong to this day um, and have been really impactful for us. And I think you can extrapolate to, um, to, to sort of machine learning or any community that you want to be a part of. Um, another, another point I, I'd like to make is, is the sort of uh, about, about the imposter syndrome and having something to say. Um, this is a sort of a meta, a meta uh, anecdote, but this podcast, uh, I've had the opportunity to bring in a lot of uh, really smart people uh, that have a lot of experience and probably don't suffer from, most of them don't suffer from imposter syndrome. But one of the things that I noticed is that many times I get feedback from other practitioners that they learn something from someone who's an expert, not in their field. So yep. many times like that six months experience that you got, maybe there's someone who's not working on similar problems to what you are, but they are sort of hear about some solution that you've applied in your specific case and with some slight modification it can be a game changer for them specifically like i have a specific idea in mind i won't use the the name of the person because i didn't ask them for permission to out them here but i had the conversation the second episode of this podcast with was with uh, uh julian from uh, hugging face which is uh at the time they're still to this day more focused on nlp um and at the time i think they had no solutions for other types of, uh, of machine learning models and a uh, very well-known computer vision researcher reached out to me afterwards saying that the ideas that we talked about for deploying NLP models really impacted how he thought about deploying computer vision models, which are technically not the same. They have different problems, different yeah. data, different processing, but it was still helpful to him. So I think you can, again, extrapolate from that to many other cases. So you should, um, value your experience more than you think. Yes, and there's a, a very famous uh, comic strip, I think by XKCD, but maybe it's someone else that's showing like uh, this circle and says like, this is human knowledge. And then we're, when you're doing a PhD or you can translate that into like, you're doing research at work, then you have like a small minimal blimp in like some specific place in the circle. And uh, yeah. most people like you're, you're the top one person in the world about that specific blip, but then the circle is so large that you can always learn something from everybody 
Um, and then again, if it fails, you come to the meetups, you don't learn anything, you're, you're not managing to speak to everybody, still free pizza is free pizza, right? True, true. That's, that's the real takeaway here. Um, okay, so um, we'll do a few um, like shorter questions to finish off uh, that I like asking most of, uh, most of the guests. Um, so what is the most exciting, uh, uh, or what are you most excited about in machine learning and, or MLOps right now and why? So I think there's, um, something that is currently not considered like, like the same, but I think they have, they're very much alike. And that's basically having things that are like Lego bricks that you can connect. And by that, I mean, um, like everybody can deploy um, like a, like Dolly one or like mini Dolly or this thing they have in Crayon AI. Mm -hmm. uh, if you have like one GPU, you can deploy something like that. I think you can deploy stable diffusion uh, yes. with one GPU. I'm not sure how, how much time it takes to uh, synthesize the image, but you can deploy it. And why can you deploy it? Because you have packages that you just like import this and then give me a model. The string name is stable diffusion and you just get the model. And we, when you yeah. combine that with something like, okay, so now I want this model to predict something within Redis, sure, so you can just like Docker compose Redis and you just have Redis inside the computer. You don't need, like for the basic stuff, you don't need a DevOps person to just get something running. Um, yes. And that's of course a blessing for the DevOps people because they get to do more interesting stuff, but it's, like a huge blessing for us. Uh, you can create an application, like a very complex deep learning application with the UI, with the backend, with the model, just by like Lego breaking um, every, all the components and have like this huge Lego um, uh, structure uh, with minimal effort. And I'm very excited about that. Uh, I think officially people are not like the, the model repositories and like the Docker Compose repository are still not considered like the same field, but in my mind, it's all Lego breaking. Yeah, yeah, Lego breaking is a good terminology. I'll say, um, I, like, I totally agree. This is, uh, I think, this is uh, going to be the second episode in 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 a row where uh, someone says that this is the most uh, the most exciting thing in machine learning right now. I think composability and modularity is is like an amazing concept, and everyone who's done a get started with Docker tutorial sort of immediately gets that magic. The fact that you can, with a tiny amount of of lines of of code or commands, can get a system that is basically specced to what you want just running is crazy. And and so maybe the the take the takeaway I have from this is. If you are one of the people building out systems, investing time in making them composable and integrated with other systems that already exist is a huge value, not just to yourself, like if you're building a product, but to other people because they can use it as, as a Lego brick. Um, yep. So awesome. I, I share that excitement. Um, <laughs> okay, so second question is, tell me something true that few people agree with in machine learning or MLOps. Yeah, I thought about it. So I'm not sure if um, I think most people would agree with 
like that uh, the theory of the the sentence I'm about to say, but most people are will not be brave enough to actually do something about this. And the phrase is, "You have too much data." Um, Interesting. And yeah, it it can make some people angry, but I think like we're collecting a lot of data. It, every company, like go to a conference of every company with a booth will tell you we are using a petabyte of data of event data every day mm-hmm. um okay but but what what happens by then you have now you have like 300 petabytes a year and what are you doing with it and for most uh use cases that i've heard from people like they have that in store and maybe if someone asks for that later in, they need this specific day, this specific event, because they need to check that something happens. Um, mm-hmm. That's like that's the most common use case I've seen for that. Uh, most of it is not used for deep learning, right? Because if you want to do or machine learning in general, right? Because um, then you want to do 300 petabytes of data. How would you deploy it? You need something like Spark with like a thousand nodes, and then this becomes a problem. So you find yourself uh, trying to work with smaller data and and in any way you look at it it's 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 a problem so if you have to legally keep that archiving that that's that's one thing but if that's a point for your company to um, uh, to be proud of that you do like one petabyte of data event data a day I'm not impressed I don't believe most of the companies that have that need that. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe they could manage with something smaller. I think I think um, maybe a finer. So you you phrased it in a way that it's a good answer to the question. It sounds controversial. I yeah. I would say that maybe a finer way to to put it is when you're starting out, you usually don't have enough data. And later on, you usually don't have enough good data. And sifting through petabyte scale data to find data that is actually useful for you to uh, sort of improve your model on is, is really hard. I think many of the uh, large scale um, uh, sort of the, the companies that deal with very large scale data. Um, and again, I'm just speaking about the areas that I, I feel more comfortable in and know more about, which are, I think, the areas where less companies are actually in it, right? So most of the companies that have petabyte scale data, probably it's like tabular data, events, stuff like that. Uh, if you go to Tesla, right, or any of the self-driving cars, um, yeah, the course. the hard part is finding hard examples within those petabytes of data so that you can actually improve your model on the edge cases. But you don't, maybe Tesla does, but I think most companies don't actually train on the entire data set in any context. So so you just have different uh, data problems. And and I, I totally agree with that. I think that um, maybe if, if I had to answer the previous question, I would say that the most exciting thing in MLOps right now is, is sort of uh, active learning because that's a sort of a paradigm that's supposed to help us deal with having too much data. Like how can I take out the examples that actually matter and train my model on those and then you have this whole other issue of how do I improve my model without forgetting the stuff that it was originally trained on. Um, but yeah, but I think that's a that's a uh, 
well-phrased answer. Um, you know, I, so got my, last... I got my daughter yeah, a sorry. new bed yesterday. Okay. Uh, and I built a new bed, and I then, then I need to, to um, take out the, the old bed. So I'm removing the bolts and keeping them on the table. And once I've thrown away all the uh, the parts that I didn't need, but then I add this like huge lump of like bolts. And mm -hmm. I like, and then I ask myself, do I need to throw them away? Or maybe some, in two years time, I will have this specific thing that I need to connect to this specific thing. And maybe this will be the perfect bolt. And that's stupid, right? Because if that thing happens, then I'll go to the store and for like less than a dollar buy a new bolt. But then I'm, I'm not bringing myself to actually throw this away. And I think uh, that's how most companies uh, treat uh, petabytes of data, <laughs> like, because maybe somewhere in the future we'll need the petabytes of data, and maybe you would. I'm not saying you won't, but most won't. Uh, again, if you're Tesla, you're Google, it's something else uh, than if yeah. you're doing something. Uh, yeah, but but you are not Google. That's 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 true. And also, I guess that's a great that's a great analogy. I think there's also Murphy's law at play. So if you throw them, then you will need them eventually. If you don't, then you won't. So you you got to decide, right? Um, so the best you thing to what, do is just store it, it happens, so you never need it. Yeah, and the thing is, like when it happens in two years' time, I will tell myself, well, I have those bolts somewhere. And I need to invest like two hours looking for those bolts, or maybe just one day after work, I'll go into the store, invest the, the like less than a dollar thing, and buy that. And now I've got like yeah. I've wasted storage space for the old ones. I didn't use them. I bought the new one, uh, so like I didn't do anything. So just like you can throw stuff away. <laughs> Fair enough. You heard this uh, here first. We will call this uh, data minimalism. Um, so you, you don't, you don't need data. Um, okay. So last questions, I guess, uh, question, I guess is, um, uh, what, what are your uh, recommendations for the audience? It doesn't have to be, uh, data science related. Yeah. So I specifically think of like not, uh, recommending data science related. And I think my, uh, best recommendation is uh, more holistic than something specific. And then that's like try to watch even like one television show uh, in real time. And by that, I mean like we have the binging culture is very um, like popular these days. And this is how I consume most of the TV shows I watch. But then mm -hmm. once in a while, I find a TV watch that I like TV show that I watch from episode one, waiting for episode two. And then it may be not the best TV show um, it's not perfect. There are many more that are like better than that, than that show, but there is something about maybe watching that TV show on the course of 10 years when the show itself is 10 years that that's like on the final episode, even if, if it wasn't the best show, you get uh, like a very specific feeling that you just can't replicate when you're binging a TV show. So maybe the next time you're seeing a new TV show, like new TV show coming up, watch the first two episodes. And if you like it, just keep on with it um, every every week. That's, that's an interesting tip. I, I don't know why, but the first thing that came to mind was uh, Game of Thrones, which 
in my opinion, and that I know is shared by many people, ended horribly, but uh, there was still something satisfying about it uh, because we've been watching it for so long. And now there's a spinoff or prequel or whatever you want to call it. Uh, so I'm watching that. I enjoy it. And I'm waiting for the next I, episode every time. Yeah. Yeah. But I can give you an example. I watched a show when I was in the university on my first year. There was another show uh, that started about uh, a university like the... Uh, the sororities and fraternities in some uh, invented college. It was called Greek. Mm -hmm. It's not a mm. very good TV show, but I've watched it every week. Uh, and it was heartwarming and it was nice. And the main character was like a geek, like I felt. Uh, and then it finished after four years, like those same four years of college. And it does something like you've, you've grown up with them. And it's something that like, it sounds very cliche, but it, it's actually the truth, right? You've grown up while while they've grown up. And then if you take oh. that into like Modern Family, I watched from episode one and like I've never been to it. And then when it, wow. it closes up 11 years later, I started that show when I was in university. Like, and then I've had yeah. like seven years of military service. Then I've joined uh, like uh, the tech world and all these things happened in my life. And then when that character started, like uh, the, the kid was like eight years old, now he's finishing college. Um, you <laughs> actually understand how time passes and you can't replicate that uh, with a binge. Although you should still binge Modern Family sometimes if you haven't, because it's a very fine show. Who, who's the best character? Um, probably Phil. Now being a dad, I'm even more... Uh, feel the guy uh, but even before that I think like he's the funniest and I, I've always been uh, the personification of a dad even before I was a dad so uh, yeah I dig yeah. that person yeah yeah definitely um, okay so I'll make one uh, data science related recommendation which is where we started um, Pi Data is uh, is happening pretty soon um, December 12th am I am I correct 13th 13th, almost. Um, so coming up, um, you should totally attend. You should totally submit if submissions are still open by the time this episode is out. Um, and and yeah, we're probably going to be there as well. So we'll see you there if you, if you join. And um, Dean, thanks for joining me today. It was a pleasure to have thanks you having on. Me. And uh, thank you all for joining, whether it's on YouTube or your podcast apps. See you uh, in the next episode. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the MLOps podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, share it with a friend or add a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get this episode. Thank you and see you next time.